and welcome to the 47th ever Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about games that you can play in your very own home, in other people's homes, on their tables, on probably on a train, uh, on the floor, which I played a lot of games on the floor when I didn't have enough table space. Doesn't matter as long as they do or sometimes don't involve cardboard. Isn't that right, Quinn? Sure is. My name's Quinton Smith. Thanks for that introduction, Paul. Uh, good. It's getting increasingly difficult to be sort of circumspect enough to cover everything. I know, I know, I know. It's uh, especially now in 2016, we decided with the remit on the site, like we're only going to review the best stuff. Like I can't tell you how many emails from people I get. Like this sounds like a joke, but it's not. I get so many emails from people saying, "Can you look at my game?" And I say, "No, I can't. There's too many games. It's too many." Uh, it's too many. What are you going to do about that? I'm going to send a load of increasingly less polite emails. Um, it's my my standards are slipping, Paul. It's so bad. That's your way of culling the games industry is just to be rude to people until games stop being made. <laughs> that is, is that is a, a critic's job. Often, um, usually not ours because we just talk about games that are nice. Today we're going to be talking about loads of games on the podcast. We're going to be talking about Jeff Engelstein's Dragon and Flagon. We're going to be talking about Vi. The Crystal Cavern, Aquarium, Twilight Struggle, maybe a bit of Innis. We're going to do some reader mail. It's a jam-packed mm. schedule, Paul. I like jam. I actually got given two separate bits of jam be- recently by two different friends who have just jammed in their own homes, and they've they've jammed me up, and they're like, "Here's some jam, Paul." And I've gone, nice. "Thanks." What kind of jam? One of them is. So let's talk about Dragon and Flagon. <laughs> Wait, hang on. I've got a good jam. I can't jam. remember what jams they are. I've got a jam fact. Uh, in Go World on. War II uh, in England, um, when a lot of food became synthetic to uh, deal with rationing, um, they made a kind of government jam that nobody liked. Uh, and one of the reasons they didn't like it was it didn't have seeds in it, um, which makes it taste very cheap. You know, those little hard, crunchy black bits that get stuck in your teeth. And, uh, I hate good- that, actually. Well, That's why they have a lot of marmalade, because it doesn't have seeds. Turns out that if you don't have that, it is even worse, according to p- the, the people. And so you know what the government did, Paul? They shaved Bakelite into the official government jam. Bakelite being a sort of 1950s <sighs> plastic substance. They shaved it and then put it in the jam like seeds. And you know what, Paul? People loved it uh, and ate it up. I uh, have no idea what to say to that. Neither do I. Let's talk about board games that... Well, let's start our list off with a game that kind of involves drinking, uh, which is like jam. Drinking, but also just scrapping, brawling. Yeah, so Jeff Engelstein, who is a designer of... One of the designers of Space Cadets um, and Space Cadets Dice Duel, two of the most excellently stupid games in the world. If you've not seen Shut Up and Sit Down's uh, Let's Play of uh, Space Cadets, it's one of my favourite videos we've ever done. Uh, Dragon and Flagon is his new game, and it is a bar fight simulator. Um, And and it's everything you'd think to do with that, isn't it? It's getting on tables and throwing furniture at people and Mm -hmm. just having the the messiest uh, stupid scraps. It is so dumb, uh, but the most important thing to know about Dragon and Flagon is the board is a bar, and the bar has three-dimensional tables, chairs, and little um, cups, I think. Uh, 
that you can throw at each other. Um, so the, it, it is a three-dimensional pub um, that's just missing the walls. Uh, I know someone's going to pimp it out and put walls on it, at which point... Or just buy a doll's house, I guess, and put a grid oh, wow. in the doll's house. What um, an idea. But it is a programming game, um, meaning that your character has a couple of slots, or if they get dazed, then you need to plan three moves ahead. Um, so, so, sort of, and then a move. One of the cards you put down might be like a move, it might be an attack, it might be a super attack, you might leap several squares forward, you might oh. swing on a chandelier. Oh um, my goodness. With the problem being that, you know, you're kind of guessing, I think someone's going to be right in front of me um, in two turns' time, and then it's your turn, and you reveal you're leaping from the table, and there's no one there. You know, and then you just go flying onto the floor. Um, You're a huge fan of Robo Rally, which is, uh, you know, obviously one of the old classic programming games where you have to anticipate, you know, where everyone's going to be in one or two or three moves time. And Mm -hmm. I've never been hugely keen on Robo Rally, but I kind of like the idea that you are scrappy, drunken fighting because it adds that you're trying to predict while slappy drunk and fighting because it adds an element of kind of like sluggishness in there yeah like weird. You, you're winding up to swing at someone who maybe can anticipate it coming yeah I mean it's funny because the reason the programming works in Robo Rally is that um, you know you're programming actual robots thematically yes, very cheap so when you know they run into walls or uh, or go sailing off into pits or bounce off each other it works and it's hilarious because you're watching a bunch of uh, broken robots um, Dragonfly Flagon is the other most perfect use for programming mechanics because it simulates drunkenness, you know? It simulates someone boasting and then what you do is you push the table so they, so he falls... He, like, he, you leave onto the table to boast then your friend pushes the table so you fall over. Um, just try punching people but they're not there anymore and then the wizard throws a fireball from across the pub except it misses everyone. Um, it is like a uh, Keystone Cops simulator, you know? Oh, yeah. Incredibly dumb. And um, the cool thing, my my favorite part of it, um, is that every character, it's like there are eight different sort of hero archetypes, like the monk, the priest, the wizard, the swashbuckler, a pirate, and every one of them comes with a different deck, and every deck is like very, very different. So, you know, like, obviously, uh, the wizard can do things that everyone else can't. But the cool thing that you then get is that if you don't look through those decks before you start playing, when the fight kicks off, you have no idea what everyone can do, and that just augments the the idiocy, you know, because uh, someone does something you had no idea they could do, and it's a cool move, except it misses everyone anyway. Um, And I like the idea that whatever you're going to pull out, whatever anyone else is going to pull out, is also going to probably be pretty unique. Yeah, yeah, it's just cute. Like, um, we, I don't know if we're gonna do a review of it because um, there's not much to say beyond the fact that it is very cute and very silly. Um, uh, but it was very goofy fun. Like, I, you know, I enjoyed the 20 minutes where I played it immensely, and then um, didn't have a huge need to buy it. But yes. uh, yeah, the fact that you can all these 3D tables and chairs, you can like pick up a chair and then you put it on your character sheet and then you can throw the chair across the room. How many um, people did you play it with, by the way? I played it at Gen Con with a full eight people, my friend. A full eight-person mad brawl. Be, I mean, it sounds like it works really well as sort of a raucous group of people bouncing off each other. Do you think like if there were three people, you would feel as excited or as entertained? I have or as absolutely- amused? I have absolutely no idea. Um, I couldn't tell you. I get uh, this. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be cynical, but I do get the feeling that it might be one of those games where the more people you throw into it, the more 
you enjoy the chaos and if you buy it and then you know it's just a couple of friends on a games night it wouldn't maybe quite have the 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 draw or the stickiness or the you know nearly as much stupid stuff happening I mean, yes and no, because the disadvantage of playing it with a full eight is um, by the end of that game, you've seen, like, every deck and have a rough idea of what everyone does. Um, even if you haven't necessarily tried everyone, which has its own appeal, you've still kind of seen everything the game has to offer at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it is good. I mean, uh, I'm not going to lie, the appeal of picking up a cup, which is like a physical 3D cup, and then declaring you're throwing the cup at your friend and it hits them and shatters on their head um, and does damage is is really great. And there's there's an extra good mechanic in it where uh, the way boasting works is for a start, uh, you have to boast, you have to stand on a table, obviously. Uh, obviously if you've ever ever boasted in real life that's how that works and all boasting does is it doubles the uh, the sort of prestige you gain from beating people up for the next few turns but um, if you get hit it doubles the the negative prestige that occurs Um, so it's excellent you know you leap onto a table and you both go I'm the best and I'm going to kill you all and then a chair gets thrown from stage right and just knocks you off the table Um, you know that's very 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 good I'm tremendously glad that uh, Dragon and Flagon exists I just I have absolutely nothing smart to say about it Um, which feels I think that's fine yeah yeah I mean it it I don't know if it's a game that I I can imagine that I would play lots of, but I think it would be fun for me to try once, and I would yeah. enjoy that. And then yeah. I, I feel cruel saying it, but then I would move on. Sure. I mean, if you get the chance to try Dragon and Flagon, do, because, you know, well, for a start, it's called... Well, no, actually, I don't like the name Dragon and Flagon. Paul, you have been Uh-oh. playing what could be called... Uh, the the world's biggest bar fight, a bar fight on a global stage. You played Twilight Struggle. This is like uh, at the the other end of the spectrum of Dragon and Flagon as well, because that's you know crazy, uh, unrealistic fantasy fighting in a bar, very slapstick. Twilight Struggle is like the most sincere game of <laughs> some dads from the eighties uh, glaring at each other. Yeah, um, if, if uh, how tell the people at home about or in their cars or on their floors about Twilight Struggle. Uh, well, imagine you're you're in a war, but it's like it's a cold war, so mm-hmm. it's chilly and you're not really fighting. There's just mostly a lot of posturing and glaring. Uh, you have this board that represents the entire world in sort of the middle of the 20th century, and it's all uh, sort of Eastern Europe is all sort of still mostly kind of Soviet and there's Poland and the old Yugoslav that used to exist and then you've got uh, uh, Israel has just appeared in the Middle East and you've got an Asia where people's power is gradually increasing two players lean over this and um, sort of sweat at each other for quite a long time as they try (laughs) and basically come out um, through the end of this Cold War as the best country, the most influential country, and they do that by doing things like uh, manipulating all the governments of all the other countries or causing coups or basically trying to cede influence all around the world, which is piling up loads of tokens. But never too much, because the thing is, if you do things like um, attempt to destabilize other people's governments too often it raises what's called the defcon level it's basically a sort of a counter that means you can not interfere too much because you just start a war 
and whoever actually starts a war loses the game. Okay, I wondered about that, because I knew Twilight Struggle had a mechanic whereby if both players were raucous enough, then there was thermonuclear war and the game just ended. I didn't realise the person who starts the war loses. That is... Yes, mm. and the thing is you have... um, it's not really it's, how it, nuclear war works, is it? I mean, well, you would think like I originally when I started playing it, I thought, well, this is the mechanic that's like, oh, you both you both lose the game, whereas it's actually not. It's like whoever is too much of a jerk destroys the world, and I guess the other side get a moral victory. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like what? So the president comes out of his his nuclear fallout shelter twenty years after the bombs have fallen and sticks his hands up and goes, "I win because I fired second. Sort of, yeah. It's like, oh well, I I destabilized the government in Iran less than you did, <laughs> so it's your fault that you've ruined everything. It's all fundamentally it's card driven. You get these uh, big hands mm. of cards that are all real events from history. Some of them help you, and some of them help the other player. And you kind of can't really help what you get. You just get a handful of things, and you could be like the American player. You could be uh, essentially like the Western powers, and you'll just have a bunch of cards that are like Soviets do a cool thing, or uh, <laughs> a guy in Egypt decides that he hates you and kicks you out and becomes friends with Russia and things like this, and you're like, okay, well, I have to play this at some point, but at least I have it, so I control when it happens. Uh, and they all have a point value, which means you can also play them to try and influence things so you can still say well you know i'm using the points from this card to bury influence in another country but then the thing on the card happens it's like it's all it's an interesting game of like um how can i say it's like sort of damage control all of this stuff happens but you at least have some control over when and how it happens and how you try and profit from it Mm. And I, I played, like, a friend... The Twilight Struggle's been around for ages, and it's been well-regarded on BGG as, like, a classic, and a friend cranked out a copy, and it's I played recently, it. It, For the longest time, it was the number one game of yes. all time on BoardGameGeek, which is calculated through a weird combination of number of votes and average vote. Um, although it's now number three, because Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is has the number one slot. I think in no small part, because we were very noisy in calling it the best game of all time. And uh, it's a very good game. It's. I would argue Ooh. it's pretty good, yeah. Um, <laughs> What's at number two? Number two is a little game port. I don't know if you've heard of it, called Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. Oh, yeah, are you... <laughs> If you're not aware, readers at home, through the ages, uh, the, is, a new story of civilization is a game Paul reviewed recently. And, I think uh, I'm having a stroke. And was not a fan. Um, number four is Terra Mystica and Caverna. Terra uh, Mystica is, is, is great. Caverna is great. Wait, no, I just, I know I'm derailing this. It's <laughs> got to number two? What, through the ages? Yeah. Why? Because board game geeks' user base is old. It's so long and repetitive. Yes. So here's it- a thing that I liked. Sorry, I'm going to jump on this. But here's the thing I liked about Twilight Struggle as well. It's a long game. You get a lot of cards. You go through different ages of time. But as you do more card cycling, different things happen. And it has a kind of a natural... I suppose sort of history-based balancing where you start the game in the 50s and a lot of the stuff that happens tends to benefit the Soviets. Mm. So they start leading on points, but towards the end of the game, there are more events that tip things slightly to the USA. 
I know which... that, that this is supremely popular, this car-driven system. We looked at this same system in when we did our review of 1960, The Making of it's the President. It's very much like that, yeah. Right, um, and people can see that review if they if they Google Shut Up Sit Down, 1960, Making of the President. But it, I found it bizarre, and Matt Thrower talked a bit about this when he was covering war games for us. Um, but it's like, first off, who do you really represent? Because if you're the leader of a country, why do you have the ability to, like you say, determine when Russia invents something if you're playing America? Yeah. Um, but then also, I struggle with it because the fun of these um, games for me is so much in like probing like an alternate history. Um, whereas what you play is an alternate history, but where, you know, there's like 120 or so fixed events that will always happen. Yeah. And this is the thing. It's, I, you, I guess you're like, you're some abstract force of history. It's like when you're playing, uh, civilization, the video game, it's like, well, you sort of represent all of the Romans in a way. And so you're, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's like all of the undead Romans who can never die, um, it's yeah, some eternal leader power um but i mean you're right that a lot of the same stuff happens but in different ways and the thing i liked it and i enjoyed it and i found it interesting but you get this huge board with all these countries and you think oh wouldn't it be great if i try and influence canada in this game or i do certain things in asia this time because you know i, I earned quite a lot of victory points last time because i had domination in asia and there was like a round of scoring and i scored loads of points and maybe i'll just push that this time but you know when you play chess you have that same opening every time same yes setup. and there's a, there's like a bunch of different ways to do your opening moves mm-hmm. and it's like well you know if i did this with a knight that opens up all these things but closes off all these other possibilities yeah twilight struggle doesn't really work like that it's like well you would never do this particular thing in Britain because, like, Britain is so tightly um, squeezed up a country that it's like you're not going to take it over, so don't bother. And these are the best opening moves because people have been playing the game for quite a while. You can read advice online and it's like... Oh, wait, do you mean the person who taught you the game had played it so much that they knew the standardized openings for it? They they knew a little bit about it and they were just like, well, you know, things work like this. This country is next to this country. So if you start putting influence points in this, there's a rule where you can usually only put influence in countries next to countries where you already have it. So there's a bit of sort of area control of you want to put things down in places so later you can expand uh, and, you, and that's kind of cool you know it's like oh I've, I've completely shut you out of South America because I cut you off from Cuba and now you can't do anything there and you know there's going to be no horrible communists in South America because I've been so powerful but it's it's often the case that it's just, just like here are the best ways to uh, you know play the first few rounds of the game these cards are always going to come up in the first phases of the game because historically they did and they're you know they're counted as early cold war events so when they come up do this with them because that's what you would do you wouldn't do anything else with that and it's like you you have this board and all these cards and all these possibilities but often there is like the the best thing to do in that moment and it's like that is just the best thing to do and you're just wasting okay. your time or your abilities if you do something else and i felt kind of sad about that because it felt like you've got this world of potential and then it's like you know but but don't do that don't try and take over britain don't waste your time in africa because it's never worth it mm. and you're like okay this is this is fun and it's good but the, uh... it's not a whole world of alternate histories as you say 
Yeah, Shut Up and Sit Down fans will be well aware of our history with Virgin Queen, um, which is a big old famous uh, uh, war game that's also card-driven, set in uh, Europe around the time of Queen Elizabeth. But um, I've always threatened we're going to do a Let's Play of it. I still want to make that happen when Matt's um, back at work, because uh, that at least, even if it has this bizarre game going on, um, has multiple players who can broker alliances, who can strike deals, you know, um, Protestant powers can ally against such and such, or all the allies that, uh, all the powers that working for or against the Ottoman Empire, and then you get some nice flex and some nice play that's very organic there. I mean, that's a thing that would be fascinating to me. I mean, the idea that you might have four people playing Twilight Struggle and you you like one person's China, one's Russia, one's well, the US, oh man, one's you're Britain. You're describing the, the so counterinsurgency series there, right? The uh, the series where you all play different sides in Vietnam, where you all play different sides in yeah. Afghanistan. I mean, if people want to... Uh, if, if I was to point someone at any one interesting war game right now, it would be the Coin series, and people can just Google Coin and then war games to find out more about that. I found, I was, topically, was listening to a podcast today um, called War College, and they had an episode about um, nuclear war Ooh. today. Ooh. And uh, just about the, uh, the my favorite thing in it <clears throat> was the fact that the people who work in the bunkers um, who have to fire the nukes in America um, yes. all have to be psychologically tested. Um, because, and it just hadn't occurred to me, but like, the question being how do you find the guy who has no problem with turning the key or you know inputting the sequence into the computer that fires the nukes and kills 20 million people I'm pretty sure I knew some of those people at school though I'm sure I did <laughs> but you, you, I mean, you kind of do don't you it's just occasionally there's people where you're like they, they're not going to care I mean, but this is the thing, like, you're, you can be 99% sure that they don't care, but that's not what it's about. It's the military, and it's the most important, like, or among the most important jobs the military can have. So it's, you need someone who 100% will do it when they're told, but has a 0% chance of doing it if they're not told. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, um, goodness, let's talk about, uh, ooh, how about we talk about Vast? So here's <clears throat> the thing. You uh, got to play this recently. I was really interested in this. I didn't get. I don't think either of us got to play it at Gen Con, did we? No, we didn't. Um, it was the game we came back from Gen Con, and then we were like, "Whew, we did a good job, job at Gen Con." Uh, and then it turned out that everyone was like, "You play fast," and we went, "No." because we didn't hear of it but there's always it something looked, that slips under the radar fascinating by the way yeah oh god if people don't know about vast the crystal caverns this is a kickstarter game um <laughs> where it is a little old game where one of you plays a knight who goes into a cave um with the intention of slaying a dragon um here's the thing the dragon is played by someone else and the dragon wins if they just leave the cave because they're asleep and they need to wake up and then they leave the cave if the dragon leaves the cave the dragon wins does that sound good, Paul? That, well, yes, first of what all. If, but what I, if I, I want to know? <laughs> what Go if on. I also told you the cave was full of goblins, which is played by a third player, and the goblins win if they kill the knight? And then what if I also told you that the cave itself is played by a fourth player, and the cave hates everyone and wins if it can elongate the, ca- the game so much that there's a cave-in and everyone dies, and then it can this, be quiet. This is the thing. This is what I wanted to ask about. Paul, what if I told you there's a fifth player <laughs> who plays a thief, 
And the thief's job is to steal a certain amount from literally anybody, from the clave to the dragon, goblins, knight, whoever, and leave with the money, and everyone wants the thief to die. That That's vast, in a nutshell. I want to know what it was like to be a cave. Mm. Weird. So the thing that um, uh, happened when we played vast... Um, and I will cover this up front. I, you know, I will spoil this slightly by saying um, we didn't quite like Vast enough to give it a full review on Shut Up and Sit Down. I don't know if I'd recommend people buy it, except as a fascinating curio. Um, we struggled to enjoy it by the end of our like first two-hour game. Um, it was very, uh, very take thaty because th- my biggest problem with it was that. Um, the balance in the game comes from a player getting close to their objective and then all the other players working together to stop them um, Ooh, yeah. which works in as much as the game keeps going and it keeps the game very tense because every, everyone's almost winning all the time but it is immensely frustrating to play well and then all that happens is you get beat up by everybody uh, and there's no interaction outside of your turn like if it's not your turn you do nothing so it's like you take your turn then you wait for 15 minutes and get beat on and then you take a turn and get beat on again or not anyway the point is though the thing i want to talk about is that vast is the funniest thing the ca- the thing that happened in our game you asked about how, what, the ca- what the cave is like to play yeah um the goblin player very quickly started just showing up behind the knight on a near constant basis and doing you know that can show that japanese game where you try and get both of your thumbs up someone's butt um in a playful way wait what it this is a japanese like game you know it's played by kids like the idea is uh paul make a um interlock your fingers of both your hands um, um like as if you were making you know like a big uh like a venus flytrap yeah and then elongate both of your thumbs yep um then you try and get those thumbs um up someone's butt like through their trousers so it's not going to happen but it is i'm gonna get deported you do, i'm not saying you should do it like with people on the street you should do it I'll, consenting I've just, I've just tried with a bunch of people not just consenting kids but consenting kids that you know otherwise and probably of your own age anyway <laughs> so uh, but basically the goblins were just playing kancho with the knight like showing up every fucking turn and just doing a damage and then vanishing um and we all thought this was hilarious until we realized that the goblins had almost won and I was playing the dragon, and despite the fact that the knight's objective was to kill me, I was sitting there with the cave going, Cave, how are we going to keep the knight alive? Because if the knight died, the goblins won and the game was over. So I was working with the cave to keep my assassin alive. Um, and it's just, admittedly, lots of the stuff that happens in the game is so farcical and so funny. Like, I had some fire... Cu- like, all the, all the roles play completely differently. As the dragon, you're playing this card game as the goblins you've got three tribes as the knight you're essentially playing a mini rpg the cave is sort of playing carcassonne um because whenever anyone explores they pick which tile goes down um trying to make like a i mean that sounds like a fascinating like interlocking of systems i cannot tell you how excited we were when we got it to the table just to see how these four we played it as a four-player game without the thief which is what you're what the manual recommends Mm -hmm. um and it was so amazing initially seeing the systems work um in practice they just it wasn't all that fun um as a game uh, like as an idea and thematically uh it was beautiful but um once that had worn off a little bit and we were all just trying to win it was not an entertaining contest or challenge um 
but yeah, so like I had some fire cards left over as the dragon, so I created a fire next to me because I was like, well, if the knight comes this way, then they'll walk through the fire. And then the cave went, ah, and played a bunch of um, tokens that enabled them to have giant bats pick up a goblin tribe and dumped it in the fire, um, like a sort of barbecue. And, uh, you know, as the, as the knight, as the dragon, you can like bat items around the cave with your wings um so uh, the cute mechanic for the cave is that um because it's a cave in a fantasy world obviously it's full of treasure right but the way that works for the cave is that the more treasure chests there are on the board that are untouched um Mm -hmm. the stronger the cave gets the more resources they have to uh, play silly events so as the cave you're constantly just spewing out treasure but you also want nobody to get to it ever so you can do things like have a cave have a treasure chest appear at the end of a corridor and then immediately cause a cave in so no one can get to it like it is endlessly endlessly um silly and flavorful um that does sound it sounds so fascinating and it also sounds like a game of constantly trying to like you have this, I want to say like a four or five person seesaw. You're constantly tipping these scales, mm-hmm. you know, in in multiple directions because um, it's in your benefit for often, I guess, in two or three people's benefit for another person to fail at a thing. So temporarily, you work together or find some way to to screw a knight or find a way to screw a cave. But yeah, I can also see how that kind of prevents anyone from. I suppose logically from getting ahead but uh, I mean who who won in the end and how did that happen? Uh, I won as the dragon um, because the knight got strong enough that the goblins really struggled to hurt the knight um, and then by the time I showed up the knight had spent so much time trying to survive and get experience points that I pretty much just showed up and then made a bolt for the door and had left and it was one of those endings where everyone sort of looks at the board and goes, okay, because none of them felt particularly responsible for my winning. And I didn't feel overwhelmingly responsible for them winning or losing. Like it was, um, trying to think of an analogy, like uh, the advantage of Vast and the whole selling point is that you're playing four different mm-hmm. games. Um, unfortunately, um, that means that when someone wins or stops you from winning, it just feels like they've reached over from their game and just upset what you're doing, uh, if that makes sense. The cave, yeah. the most um, egregious um, power, and the, a big thing in the balancing is the cave has <laughs> a power called Soporific Spores, where they can spend a few tokens to essentially put one of the characters slightly to sleep. Like, the knight loses experience points, the goblin, a goblin tribe just goes for a nap, the dragon becomes sleepy again when it's just trying to wake up. Um, and what the whole back half of our game descended into was the cave spamming uh, drugs <laughs> at any player who was doing well. <laughs> um, like, it is... Huh. In 2016, Vast is the game that has conjured the funniest mental images. And it has a nice... I really like the illustrations on it, this nice cartoony art style. And it just... It's the most vivid and excellent mental image of any board game I've played this year. It's just not... It just wasn't enormously entertaining. Like, I wouldn't want to play it again. You know, um, I feel really bad saying this, and I know it's not really representative, but that actually makes me think slightly of that in-game description of Munchkin and how it's like, oh, I'm you know, the just reached 10 points because no one else has got any cards that they can play to stop me because they exhausted them stopping all the other people. I Yeah, you and I are agreed that Munchkin is bad, but I tell you what, if you like Munchkin and you're in the mood for something a little more complicated, Vast could be perfect for you. 
Um, but Paul and I would never, uh, you know, unless under duress or like <laughs> um, someone very big sitting on us, we would not say that we liked Munchkin. Uh, so not, I'm, I'm quite ambivalent about it. I wouldn't say I dislike it, but I feel I'm so on the fence and it's not a very comfortable fence. So I'd rather get <laughs> off and just play something different. But I am. It's like, uh. let's talk about something uh, then that we disagree about. Let's, let's, let's round this off with something. Uh, Uh-oh. Let's talk about Aquarium. Mm. We played that at Gen Con. Game sure of did. collecting some fish. And it was uh, charming. A, a game of competitive aquarium building, where at the start of the game you all have, I think, one rubbish fish, and then you want, at the end, hopefully to have a beautiful fish tank full of uh, corals and fish and... and, and fish. And, fish and set fish. collection, where you want to have, like... Uh, it's great if you have all the red fish one small and one medium and one big or if you have like all the medium fish of different colors and things like that and yeah you, you know i thought i i think you liked it a lot and i well, found it quite good but i didn't feel impassioned i think didn't you it. finish it and you were like that you really didn't want to play it again i think you're I underselling didn't. how much you disliked no, it maybe you're right i mean i sort of went through it and i I I Hit me. I, th- Level with I me, think Paul. looking back on it later, I, I can felt take it. better about it. But I, it was one of those things where I guess I thought, well, that's fine, and I like the idea of the game, and I like the mechanics of how it works because you you have this central board onto which new fish. Uh, it's like an array of fish, and you yeah, it's like fish it's thematically, the it's sort of what is. Actually, no. Thematically, the game makes no sense at all. Um, well, so let's like just what's on talk. sale in the shop or something? Kind of, except it's a shop that is owned by all the players, and you pay for everything with bubbles. So let's not dwell right. on what any of this means. But you've, you've got a, a hand of action cards, and that's usually uh, that determines what you can do. And when you play those, um, they remain face up. So whenever you have done a particular thing on a turn that's it like you can't do that again and that can be what is it it's like doubling the value of the fish or halving the value of the fish I've been thinking about this for a while so on your I could explain this game in my sleep Um, so (laughs) on your turn you either add a card to the shop and make it juicier for everybody or you go I want to buy everything in that shop and then all the other players um, whether it's you're playing with two or four um, then get to mess with the shop either by putting more stuff in it so it becomes like a more expensive batch um, or they can take stuff out of it or, and this is where the game gets really fun, they can increase the price, they can lower the price, they can double the price or they can halve the price but if they play the half the price card then all that money you pay into the shop, if you still decide you want it at the end of your friends just messing with it, all that money goes to them Yes, um, which is huge um, and so it's very much a game of like if there's a really good selection on the shop one player what you, what you do not want, and what happened multiple times in our game, is there being an incredible quantity of stuff in the shop. Just beautiful fish. And by the way, the illustration of this game was is, is genuinely stunning, because the fish aren't actually fish. It's like the red fish are paper lanterns, and the blue fish are made of glass. And uh, yeah, it's, it's the best illustration job I can imagine getting for a game that is about fish. Um, but what you don't want is, if you want, there's a stunning array of stuff in the shop, and it would explode a player's score that one player goes, oh, they can't have that, and plays the double, and someone else goes, ooh, they really want that, therefore I want them to pay pay me for it, and then they play the um, halve the price card, at which point they just pay the ordinary price to another player that isn't you, 
and you scream because now one player got rich, another player got fish, and you got fucked and lost your half price card, uh, and that, double price card. That's the thing. Rather. Once you've you've played these cards, it's like you've committed to that action in that context. So you you know you you look around at everyone and you can see what they have previously done. You right, know, once exactly. Once you double that fish price, you can't do that again in this round of play. So and oh, it's great because the you don't know when the rounds are going to end, Paul. So no. you've got this thing of going, you know, like, well, if I, I'll spend all my cards early. But if you blow all your good cards, and then the round ends up dragging on because the card that signals the end of the round doesn't happen, then um, you end up losing all power to influence the game. Oh, you were you were a risky man, and it didn't pay off, and ah. It's good, and doesn't play quite like any card game I've played before, and it's nice looking. It's one of Zedman's new deluxe card games, and my god, they are just making the prettiest card games in the world right now. It, it does look nice, and it is an interesting idea for a system, and I felt it was kind of just a bit sort of random to some degree. I didn't always feel like people were making these amazing plays where it's like oh you know i i saw this coming and i came up with a really cool idea it's just like well this is what i had left and i played this action and it happened to be useful at this point because it was <laughs> that I, that was my my issue with it sure well, my but... main issue with it was i i didn't it felt you can make clever moves um and cool ploys but I don't think you can see far enough ahead into what's coming yeah, you to know, necessarily be a really skilled player. I would agree that it strikes a difficult balance um, between card games that are fun because they're breezy, stupid gambling and mm-hmm. card games that are incredibly tense and thoughtful. Whereas Aquarium is very tense and thoughtful, but it's still a bit of a gamble. So I did find myself getting a bit frustrated in our game because... Um, I was thinking so much, and then because of the whim of one player, my ploy would or wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Aquarium is no Arboretum, that's for sure. Um, you played some Arboretum this week, it's right? It's funny. It's funny that you mention Arboretum. It's well, it's the funny. same publisher, so it is, and it's another card game of uh, actually really quite nice production quality. Yeah, we don't want to talk too much about it because Matt and I did a big Arboretum review that I reckon you should definitely go and look at. A nice video um, because, oh, Arboretum, it's really very uh, good. I had a lot of fun playing it. I played it two-player with a friend who brought it round. And, oh my god, it's a game of being a jerk, actually. It's this, you think it's a nice game of laying out some trees in a row. And then you get to the end and it's like, I saw what trees you're laying out, so I'm holding on to the number one of those trees. I've screwed your trees. Your trees are worth nothing. And then you're like, actually, I held on to the the other two high-value trees of those trees, so I've trumped your trumping of my trees. And you're like, oh, but I spent the whole game trying to set up those trees in a nice line. Thanks. I <laughs> we, we had like these games where you just score like a, a a tiny pittance of points each because you spend the whole time <laughs> trying to collect the cards that will ruin the other player's chance of doing well and it works really well as a game I was I thought I was going going to enjoy it because I liked the review that you and Matt did and it sounded interesting but I was really I was still surprised I thought this is good fun this is clever this is the thing, like, we took pains in that review with, like, shots, you know, footage of me walking around an actual arboretum and looking yeah. miserable and, like, sinister close-ups of my face when I was shouting at Matt. But still, we, we failed to get across, I think, exactly how mean it is. Like, it, it but, is. but mean in a lovely way because 
Um, the problem with, uh, I think, meanness in games is that meanness that shows up like halfway through just sours people. Like, you and I recently did a review of um, Inish, um, the Irish looking uh, area control war game, which we adore. Um, it's but very good. I attacked a player first turn um, in his first game of Inish recently, and uh, he was, you know, he was upset. But the lovely thing about Arboretum is that all the meanness comes at the, like, literally the last 10 seconds of the game when you go, oh, by the way, all of your plans are destroyed, and yes. they are now ash, and not a cool ash tree, but literally ash. Um, yep. So no one has the chance to get upset. You just end the game and you go, "Oh, oh, you, you're a, you're a bastard." Okay, and then you score and it's over. There and I, I guess you know the more skilled you are, the more um, you can see ahead. You'll get better at this. But I didn't feel like I got screwed by being a new player. I, I knew enough about how the game worked to already be kind of coy in how I played and try things out and you know the the core concepts of it were were simple enough that I just I just got them and then it just became a case of trying to anticipate and trying to uh outmaneuver somebody yeah it's ice and very very quickly before we move on to all the many treasures in our mailbag this uh month Ooh. um you've been playing a lot of crossing right I did a written review of Crossing uh, about two weeks ago now, which is a mushroom pointing game. If you can just see fingers pointing at mushrooms, that's it. If people want to know more about Crossing, uh, I, yeah, I guess everything we want to hear about is um, on Shut Up and Sit Down. If you search for Crossing on shutupandsitdown.com. Um, but Paul, you can confirm it's still really good. I I have actually just taken it everywhere with me and broken out in front of people because it's it is the probably the easiest board game that i've ever taught because it's just i i'm like how do you get gems you point at the gems on a mushroom oh you've got the gems they're on your player board what happens if someone points at your player board they take them away from you and then that that really simple dynamic of there's one more player than there are places to point so there's always the potential for conflict and you know the hilarious mistake where you all point in the same place and uh, I just I'm not I don't know at what point I'm going to get tired of it because it's it's not bad with like <laughs> three people but then as soon as you get like four or five of a slightly bigger group it becomes so farcical like I've had games where I've had I've had virtually no points because I just can't point in the right place at the right time and I've not collected any gems <laughs> and you watch the person next to you just through a combination of I don't know there's like you can be clever and canny but there's an element of luck and they just stack up all of these gems and all of these points and so you try and right you know I clearly I can take those back if I just <laughs> do the, oh that didn't work oh, and God. it's that over and over again it's this I don't know Buster, Buster Keaton kind of comedy slapstick thing and it's like I you know, you should take it traveling and like play it in a hostel with foreigners who you don't even speak the same language of, and you could probably end up get away with the it. evening away. But I, I am not done with that game yet. I'm just taking it everywhere and <laughs> making people play because everybody gets it within five minutes and then everybody laughs. Well, hey, talking about uh, games that you can play anywhere, let's dip our Ooh. hands in the mailbag. Anywhere is my favorite place. Put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter. We've got two we go. emails for you today. The email address, if you want to let Shut Up and Sit Down know anything at Ever. all. 
I had an email uh, this week from a lady who was asking why Sherlock Holmes consultant detective was bullshit. And I was like, it's not. I know loads of people who solve it. And then she got annoyed yeah, and told me. argue with Quinns. <laughs> she told me she had a PhD. Um, uh, so, but I was like, well, you're still not cut out to be a detective. It was a charming wow. exchange. Anyway, wow. we, we've got an email uh, here Salty. from Boris Carl. Boris writes, hey, how are you doing? I recently had the pleasure of meeting you at the first live podcast at the UK Games Expo and got you guys to sign my brand new copy of Skull. Now I return with a question. What board game would you suggest playing on a first date? Question mark. And later dates? Question mark. Oh, that's a really good question. First date. Well, you'd hope that... Well, dates are two-player games that immediately... Let's cut this down. Uh, you know, polyamory's fine, but we're going to assume, Boris, that you are an ordinary man. Uh, not that polyamory's... It's a bit weird, let's be honest. It's a bit weird. Um, There's weird ice cream flavours, but there are people out there who like them, and I would never tell people what ice cream to have, even if the only good ice cream is chocolate. That is which is a fact bollocks <laughs> um, Paul you've been going on some dates recently I've, I have of yeah. varying quality okay um, have you taken any board games in any of them I haven't taken Twilight Struggle I'll tell you that <laughs> uh, um, what about the idea of Go Cuckoo or Cuckoo Go I can never remember Go Cuckoo is actually yeah that has been something that I've pulled out and played with dates funnily enough it really, really has been yes because it because you're looking for a can... nesting instinct in a lady, and a lady who has good egg control. Um, I when I look at a woman, I think, what will she be like stacking in a nest. bits of wood on top of each other? Um, it does. You know, like, speak will she be good at that? A and certain amount of like not... sensibleness and like a practical streak. But it also just, you know, people think, oh, it's going to be something dull or something with lots of dice. And you're like, well, games can be about dexterity and they can be about silly things. And I had a lot of fun, like, fi- filming junk art and Pingo Pingo recently. So, you know, it's like there's actually so much you can do. And it's, it doesn't involve a dungeon or goblins or or miniatures or, you know, tanks. I mean, if so- I'm taking a game on a first date, it just has to be so good. Like it has to be from the the top be shelf. Good and accessible, right? So I think for me, love letter is kind of good, or maybe something equally accessible is Jaipur, of course, the greatest two player card game of all time. Um, I think that's actually particularly like love letter. I think is great. Jaipur is a, really good a suggestion. bit tricky to Google. If people want to Google Jaipur, Google shut up and sit down, and then J A I P U R. I have uh, also gone out with tiny copies of, or normal sized copies of um, Carcassonne, which is a, a game you can play with up to five people, but it, it feels different when there's just two of you. And it's very easy to explain. And occasionally Citadels, actually, which right. I'm still not bored of. Talking personally, if I were to go on a date, and I pr- hopefully won't because I'm a married man, um, but, uh, you know, I want to tell people there's more to me than board games, you know? I probably wouldn't bring a board game. I feel like I'm playing to type when people are like, Quinns, did you bring a board game? And I'm like, well, yeah. But that's um, that's what they, they want you for. I mean, I if know. Um, they'll still they'll make fun of USP. me for it, but they'd be disappointed if I did anything else. Paul, let's move on to uh, our next mail. Well, it begins with a greeting or with a word that I like, which is folk, because I like the word folk or folks. I like calling people folks. It says, hello, folk. I bothered you for recommendations for a school board game club a bit back and would appreciate some more, but have found my little club has become obsessed with jungle speed. Mm. Mm. 
Over time, the repeat playthroughs have moved us more and more away from the base game until we have reached a level of Baroque complexity, which requires three full-size crash mats. Oh, God, I remember those. That's a thing that you only kind of have at school, mm. or I guess in police training. Um Three full-size crash mats, a traditional school hall bench, and use of tennis court markings. And so a question. Have you ever overcomplicated a game to the point of ridiculousness, or conversely honed a game down to a level of mathematical purity? Hmm. I'm now going to attempt to coax them away from the sports hall with a combination of skull and dancing eggs. Oh god, dancing eggs. That's from Andrew Clarkson. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, have, have you? Have you done either of those things? I specifically wanted to answer this email because I've noticed something recently, something super sinister in my board game collection, Paul. It's like Uh-oh. a it's like a dark plague that is ravaging my uh, <sighs> the realm of Quentin's board games, and that my is my least this... favorite plague is dark plagues. Uh, yeah, all it's, the plagues. it's never light plagues. It's never like a gentle summer plague. Um, but although most plagues would spread in summer because of the heat. But um, here's what I do, Paul. I find out this board game, there's expansions for a game, and my completionist collector's, you know, uh, stripe fills in. I'm like, oh, Dead of Winter, The Long Night. I'd love a copy of that so I can combine it with my copy of Dead of Winter and have a super Dead of Winter because I like Dead of Winter. And then I'm like, the, I combine it all, and I probably have to take out the inlay, and I have to bag everything, and then there's way more components, and now there's two manuals. And you know what happens, Paul? It makes me that much less likely to bust out the game if I haven't played it in a long time. Because really? Yeah, because I have to read two manuals and because um, there's no inlay. Like, it becomes more like just a bag of nonsense but or you, a box of nonsense. But you've always liked adding the, like, the extra... It's like acting adding an extra hand to a clock or something. Oh, yeah, but Paul, I've got so many games that I'm only, at best, going to play something like, unless it's small and really good, I'm probably going to play something once or twice a year. And that is exactly enough time for me to forget literally every single rule in the game. Which means, when you add an expansion and you only play something once a year, it becomes more difficult, even if I just want to play the base game, because then, unless I've done something super clever with, like, bagging and then sealing off the expansion bits, I have to remember which components I don't play with. Oh help me. So what I've done is I've started intentionally omitting rules from some games where I when I teach them like the the Carcassonne thing is just like we we won't play the game without we'll play the game without farmers we won't have farmers in like the first few games until you get used to it because farmers are sort of a slightly more abstract concept that is an end of game so we just won't we just won't put them in. And I've started doing this with a couple of games of chopping things out slightly um, or trimming around the edges, which is a little bit kind of naughty to some degree because sooner or later someone looks at a card or a rule and they're like, oh, but there's this extra scoring thing or there's, you can do this, you know, there's a hand limit here. And it's like, well, yeah, there is, but, you know, we'll, the point is to get the idea of the game first than to get all the precision. And I actually really like that. I like the idea of trimming things down. And being a little bit, um, it's, it's like cheating on your homework, I guess, Dude, or cutting this is, corners. But it, this it, is like a it, it bible. Gets people into it. 
that's fine. This is a parable, dude. It's like I'm the 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 big the ugly brother who wanders off and sins and fills his board game with nonsense, and you're just purifying your game. You're stripping down your collection, and you're the I've, happier I've for the it. I think. I mean, if we go back to like the the Paul that I've talked about occasionally of like the Hero Quest days, then it would just be like, oh, I'm adding more monsters. I'm adding more rules. I'm adding more. What did he smell uh, like, Hero Quest Paul? When you know back in the day, he was he was fine. Yeah, but you know, in general, <laughs> if he if he if he smelled of one thing, like Monster Munch or like, oh wow, is it soap? Uh, I, it feels silly to say so, but I want to just say cardboard, or he might have smelt of like just links, just Were that you classic. You in a box. You smelled of links. Links. If you're American, uh, in America, it's known as Axe body spray. Because that's just the, the what the deodorant that I would have had. Because it's all I would have known, and I would have being paranoid about smelling bad so uh, I would have been sat there with all my miniatures and all my new custom rules for <laughs> custom dungeons smelling quite good I just remembered something else I played uh, I played Mah- Mahjong for the first time oh, oh I haven't played that in like 10 years oh, yeah, it's, it's not very good is it I mean it's fine it's pretty good uh, you, I'm trying to remember. Like you draft tiles and you collect tiles, and there are yeah, tiles. Yeah, like and... all I wanted to do with this was say, "Oh, I played mahjong," and you'd go, "Oh, how was it?" And I'd go, "Oh, it was fine." And then that would be a com- a comedic point to cut to the folk game of the month jingle. But you've been too good at engaging me in a real conversation. Are you surely you're kind of saying something hugely insulting if you just say because it, it has such a history and so many people? <laughs> it would yeah. be like saying I played bridge for the first time and it's a bad game. Well, no, okay, but Mahjong is... Imagine how many old people would just immediately die. <laughs> um, it, uh, Mahjong, all right, Mahjong isn't bad, and it did some stuff that was interesting. The thing I... You've, you've, you've tricked me and made me feel culturally <laughs> insensitive if I don't give this game a fair goddamn shake. Uh, yeah, it was interesting because um, the girl teaching it to me, uh, was, who was long-suffering, like me being me, every time she would teach a rule... I would immediately jump to the end and be like, oh, because of this? Or like, oh, then you can do this, right? Because I've played poker up in a million games. I know yeah. this stuff works. But every single time she would go, no, and explain something different. Um, like a curveball. Because it, I guess geographically it evolved in such a uh, far off place um, that it, it was just different. Every aspect of it was unusual and unlike a game I'd played. Um, which makes me happy about the fact that we're getting more sort of like Singaporean and Korean and Chinese um, and Japanese board game designers because like just heritage if you grow up playing different board games and different card games and you know then you're naturally gonna look at numbers and probabilities and mechanics in a different way so that could be cool yeah yeah you'd have I suppose you would have different expectations of a thing that would happen yes or a right. mechanic that would happen like you'd expect <laughs> randomness to happen in a certain way uh, and now that segment has been thoroughly drained of uh, of humour. Let's move on to our folk game of the month. Folk game of the month. This month's folk games plural come from uh, excellent shut up and sit down reader Mac, and we have got three folk games here. Each, um, I don't know, I don't know. All of them are more something than another. I, they're all very weird. I mean, we get sent so many folk games, but I couldn't not read this email out. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to see you, hear you reading all of this. I'm going to read very quickly. Um, but we're going to stop after each game, and I want you to give me your thoughts. I want you to give me a score out of 10. 
Um, I want you to okay. channel, you know, your you you and I used to be video game journalists, right? Let's pull that back. Uh, yeah, we've. I mean, we well, we still are. That's what Cool Ghost is. Is very very <laughs> yeah. incisive video games I'd criticism. Actually, forgotten that I do Cool Ghosts. Free, um, with little Matt. free plug there. Definitely subscribe to that on YouTube if you haven't yet. Everybody. Thanks, Paul. You're the best. Okay, <laughs> so Mac writes, long time watcher, first time emailer. Anyway, your segment on folk games always has me busting a gut, so I thought I'd share with you some games that we played at my church's youth group. And as the youth pastor, I was particularly fond of unusual games. So this is yet another folk game that confirms the fact that churches are like ground zero of weird fucking games in America. It's always youth groups, churches that have kids doing the the weirdest stuff, I think. We've discovered this now. Mac writes, Egg Drop is a simply awful game for any number of teams of two. One of the players on each team lies on the floor, brackets hopefully on a tarp of some sort, carefully balances a small paper Dixie shot glass, shot glass now, in a on, church. On his, or <laughs> on his or her forehead, and proceeds to cry as the other team member must crack an egg at eye level with arms fully extended and drop said egg into a cup. First team to successfully get the whole yolk in the cup wins, usually also getting to be the first team to wash off in a sink. The game is played in real time, so the player cracking the egg is free to be as methodical or reckless as he or she wants, and the player on the floor rarely speaks for fear of a poorly aimed egg, the eyes being shut tight as well. (laughs) Now, it implies there, as far as I can tell, that... You have multiple eggs. Like, if you miss with one egg, you could... Oh, yeah, you've bought, like, a dozen eggs at least for this. Yeah. It's, uh... I mean, how do you decide which of you gets to be the steady hand attempting the test of skill and which of you has to lie on a floor getting an egg, you know... Kids are really good at somehow finding ways to strong-arm each other into doing things, so I think natural kid selection would determine... (laughs) I feel you this know, game who is who. This this game would be three uh, like attractive boys and girls are cracking eggs into three boys and girls who just really want to be close to them, <laughs> even if it, even <laughs> if they're at a distance of four feet and having an egg cracked into their face. That a is shot not glass, the most though, seductive thing. Like this would be hard if it was a pint glass, but a shot glass, small paper Dixie. Sh- well, you know when when you are in a church. You have all sorts of access to shot glasses. Mm. What are the kids doing today? Are they doing the Sermon on the Mount? No, they're doing <laughs> eggs and shot glasses. Oh, dear. For, I mean, for a score for this, I mean, this sounds silly. I want to say, like, I feel bad, but I want to say about six, like, clearly. <laughs> six is pretty generous, be, dude. It's, it's fun to be had here, and you will laugh, but also I feel like I can see exactly where this is going. Don't you think that, like, if... There was a shut up and sit down skit where, you know, the characters of Paul and Quinn's had to come up with a game in like a 24 hour game jam. We would come up with egg drop like that would be the joke is that at the end of (laughs) at the end of 24 hours, this is what we'd be talking people through on a whiteboard. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Moving on. Mac writes a fong. Uh, was probably more bizarre and aggressive than the simple terror of Egg Drop, but was definitely cleaner. Afong involved two or more players placing a tennis ball in the foot of a long nylon sock and stretching the open end of the sock over their head down to the chin. The Uh, players mm. were then required to keep their arms behind their backs, but were allowed to do virtually anything else to make the other player, player or players give up or pull off their sock. This often meant wild flailing of the strange weapons, trying to beat someone into surrender with a tennis ball, or tangle up their sock in yours and trying to yank it free, all while 
Unable to see more than blurs due to having a sock over your eyes, the last player still armed with his or her sock and tennis ball was declared the winner. Wow. Eight. Like, eight, yeah. I'm in like seven, I, eight, yeah. I mean, I, I, I immediately like this because I guess you it, headbutting, tennis ball headbutting has to be a thing that everyone's doing surely here because you've got this... You think headbutting? Don't you think like helicoptering? Like you just spin your head around in a circle, and then the tennis. Oh, I guess that pulls the sock off your head, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the. I mean, I the a sock on a head. That's pretty tight as well. That's only certain kinds of sock are going to do that. I feel like I would use my uh, marginally higher than average bulk. I would sort of body charge someone, try and get them on the floor. Then I would stand on the gap between the tennis ball and the top of their head where the sock is so if they try to sit up or move they will just pull the sock off right uh, yeah yeah no that works as well you I... know what i think i've seen this this game in uh, really the second hunger games movie yeah i think they have to do with this exact game um why is it called afong is my question uh that's such an odd name as well afong yeah it's, it's such a weirdly specific name isn't it <laughs> God, yeah, this this is one of those excellent folk games where you read it and then it's like it, it creates more questions <laughs> that you that you have no means of getting the answer to. But I, I like the sound of this. I mean I I would play this at a wedding or something. <laughs> I mean, I don't you think that is like a scene in a David Lynch film that a character walks into a room and there's just like six people playing this? Just wildly sort of whacking each other with tennis balls on the other side. Whacking of each other, bouncing off each other. Because there's got to be the element of surely you just, you fall over or you... I mean, you can't you, see, right? And your hands are behind your back, so you've already you, lost that center of gravity. Having had like, you know, a various degrees of sweater over my head in in different stages of my life you can see but it's i i think you can actually mostly functionally see it's like picking out details becomes harder mm. i'm gonna probably go away and try this and just pull different kinds of things over my eye and see what i can see through them i sincerely hope that uh, a package or a game arrives and you sort of answer the front door without thinking about it <laughs> you have a sock over your head it would make you look like a kind of a weird shit bank robber. Uh, Mac ends his email with, oh, and for the heck of it, the kissing game... W- ooh, wait. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, yep. I didn't know if I d- missed something, but no, that's how this paragraph begins. Yep. The kissing game was never played in church, Mac specifies, but existed in the United States Upper Midwest. All players would sit in a circle, preferably alternating boy-girl, boy-girl, and whoever was elected to go first began by placing a playing card flat on his or her lips, then inhaling through the mouth to keep it stuck there. Then, to create a suitably awkward atmosphere, the card was passed to an adjacent player without using the hands or teeth, resulting in something resembling a kiss with an intervening player card. The receiver then had to pass off the card in a similar manner before running out of breath and dropping it. If the card was dropped, the player dropping it was out, and then this plays in a last man standing style. And yes, it was just as strange and uncomfortable as it sounds, but embraced for the same reasons as Twister. Now, I thought this game was, like, awesome, because you know my opinions on games that... Like, games teach kids all kinds of skills, like, and that has to include flirting and talking to the opposite sex and coming to terms (laughs) with that stuff. And I know I always sound like a creep when I talk about the importance. But so, uh, my wife was in the room with me, Lee, and Mm -hmm. I said, oh, and I was was reading this email, and I go, oh, Lee, um, listen to this game. And then halfway through the paragraph, to my unending horror, Lee goes, oh yeah, I've played this. Uh, which is 
I mean, wow. th- that's fine. But then we tried it. And I'll tell you what, it is really hard because you just run out of breath. Like, yeah. the amount of sucking required to keep the playing card there, like, you have no fucking time. Uh, no, I, I can instantly see how this would be actually really difficult if you're just, like, sat cross-legged and you're supposed to lean over to another person. Just the challenge of, like, the how you turn your head and how your sitting position changes mm. without it falling, I can see that actually being really difficult. Yeah, it's... Uh, and, yeah, it's it's good... I kind of like the, the Last Man Standing uh, edition as well because it like it's it's kind of accidentally the opposite of what the game is supposed to be. If the game allows you to sort of like simulate a kiss with someone, the the fact that quote unquote winning the game is like you stood by yourself with no one left to kiss because you've eliminated them all is uh... oh shit. Hang on, wait. Imagine when you get down to three people because then all you're really doing is like once you've shrunk the circle that much, you're pretty much just. <sighs> pass the card, and then you pass the card, then you pass the card, so it's almost like you're just sort of kissing, kissing, kissing until someone messes up, which is, like, pretty intense. The the game must be getting faster as the circle, like, gets tighter. It would be hilarious if you had a circle of 12 boys and girls, and all the girls to whom, you know, who are a bit more, like, sort of, hypothetically, they might be, um, uh, a, a bit less competitive, so all the girls got eliminated, and then you just have a load of boys, uh, who are... Yeah, just sucking on a card, which is getting increasingly moist as they flatten their faces <laughs> oh, to each other. God. I was going to say, I feel like it as well, doing things as quickly as possible is maybe the key to not dropping the card. So it just becomes people mashing faces together kind of a bit too fast, a bit too hard. Mm. Ow. Mm. Seven um, out of ten? <laughs> and on that note, seven. Um, if you do like the if there is someone you fancy, um, here's a hot tip. If there's someone you fancy um, and you do and you like the sound of this and you're thinking god I wish I was 12 again and I could play this game with them uh, then I would recommend you buy Witness which is a game that Paul that Shut Up and Sit Down has talked about a lot and um, I, I, we haven't seen much buzz elsewhere but Witness Witness is an excellent 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 puzzle game um, that is cooperative but involves players whispering to each other a lot which in our review people commented being like oh, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with this um, and that's fine but it might be the perfect game to get someone whispering in your ear who you would like to that to do that to happen to you like to do that to happen to you today uh, on on your table on your floor at home in, in your, your own very home. own home uh, or in a car or on a camping trip or that, on holiday that game is called witness and a search for shut up and sit down and witness or using the search function on shut up and sit down will take you straight to my uh, video review of witness do you remember when we didn't have a search function uh, yes it, yeah and, and it wasn't pe- so long ago was it you know how many emails I wrote to people saying um, please use google <laughs> which <laughs> is literally what I do people it's not anyway it's fine everything's it's fine, fine. We Don't have a search function now. Uh, that just about wraps up this uh, somewhat overlong 47th podcast ever. If you are not a Shut Up and Sit Down donor, you might have missed out on some of the discussion yesterday and that went around in our newsletter. Um, the, 
we've basically decided that uh, we're going to be doing maybe slightly less frequent video reviews and giving them a bit more attention to detail. So video reviews really on the site will be uh, much more for games that we really do love, that we really want to talk about. That means the podcast is going to become a little bit more like a clearinghouse for all the stuff we play that might be super interesting or good, but doesn't quite make it to a video review for whatever reason. And it's always nice to have two or three people on a podcast properly digging into something that might be weird or imperfect or curious as I'm well. so glad I got to talk about Vast because yeah people need to know about Vast the Crystal Caverns um, yeah. even if I wouldn't necessarily recommend um, people buy it because my god what a fun design alright Paul what are you going to do for the rest of the day it's 7.20pm uh, well, over here so. it is it's 11.20pm so uh, I feel like I need to buy some asparagus because mean I've I have really gone to asparagus lately and I went to try and buy some the other day from my grocer and it was all gone and Whoa. I was actually a bit annoyed because it was very busy and I went there and I had all my others like my shampoo and my my chips as they call them in North America they just oh, mean like crisps yeah. join the dark side or well, the, the light side of me and Matt Paul we're so into vegetables as soon as this podcast's over, I'm going to send you so many vegetable recipes. Asparagus is really good. It's good for you, so and some, it's dude, just tasty. And... All vegetables are good. The only reason vegetables are ever not delicious is if you've overcooked them, undercooked them, or not put enough salt on them. Ooh, well, or I too much say, salt. Some are better than others. I've been a big fan of bell peppers for a long time. but asp- like I've had asparagus before, but some things happen. Like I've reached, A man reaches a certain age... And he just... And his body he, starts rejecting large quantities of meat, and he turns... He's just like, I want asparagus. I guess I, I, I either want to buy a sports car, or I want to buy asparagus. And my, my particular genetic makeup is like, don't need to buy a sports car, don't need to, to <laughs> you know, show off. But I do need some of those... Paul, here's spears. what you do. We talked about Arboretum earlier. Go back and watch the Arboretum video review on the site, and cook broccoli in the way that Matt cooks it at the end of the Arboretum yeah. review. Yeah. I've, be, I've also been a fan of broccoli for a long time, but oh my god, nice. that's a good recipe. Right, everybody. We'll s- god, I don't even know what's going on. We will see you we in need a separate vegetable podcast. We'll see you in the forty-eighth Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. Good night, cauliflower. cauliflower.